to For the Love of Jewelers, a podcast connecting people engaged in the craft and industry of jewelry making. Brought to you by Rio Grande Jewelry Supplies and hosted by yours truly, Courtney Gray, founder of Creative Side Jewelry Academy in Austin, Texas. I'm honored and excited to take you on this journey to discover not only the how, but why we make jewelry. My goal is to not only inform you, but to empower you by sharing the passion, perspective, and perseverance of your fellow makers and professionals in all facets of the craft. Let's dive in. Joe Hamer has a background in both fine arts and commercial jewelry making. She started creating jewelry in 1969 and is a second generation artist. Joe majored in jewelry and metals at the University of Oregon and served a formal apprenticeship in the Jewelers Union. She was actually the first woman journeyman bench worker in a union. She has worked in various trade and manufacturing shops and has been instrumental in the assemblage, brazing, hammering, and riveting of the Portlandia statue, a three-story tall copper statue. Most recently, she has been making high-end custom eyewear and teaching private classes in her studio. She is best known for complicated fabrication and engineering clasps and mechanisms. Her work has been shown in galleries all over the U.S. and at the University of Oregon Fine Art Museum. Her work is mostly in private collections and can be seen online at timothywgreen.com. I hope you enjoy this fabulous conversation with Joe Hamer. Okay, guys, we're here with Joe Hamer. I'm here at the Portland Symposium in Portland, Oregon. It's beautiful here. The sun is out, and when you're in the shade, it probably feels like 60s and in the sun 70s it's like california weather it's perfect it is perfect joe's been in the industry for quite a while you work with your husband timothy green timothywgreen.com correct yes yeah tell i want to hear from you joe and i'm just getting a chance to meet joe myself uh we both served on the rio grande advisory board but we have not crossed paths until today Joe, you mentioned earlier that you're a metal geek and a bench monkey can you please define bench monkey for us uh, bench monkey, oh my goodness. Uh, well, um, I, I tell people that uh, the reason I'm a manual laborer is because I failed to pay attention in school, and uh, so I have to make my living with my hands. <laughs> uh, when I showed up at the first Santa Fe Symposium, and, and even the Portland, I've been going to the Portland Jewelry Symposiums for ever since they started, and whenever I walk into the big ballroom, I'm surrounded by metallurgists with mm. PhDs and people with engineering degrees, and I have a GED. You know? Right, right. <laughs> I got my GED too, Joe. Yeah. yeah okay, yeah. <laughs> but that's about it, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A couple certificates, but yeah. But yeah. Um, uh, so a, yeah, I'm a bench honor. monkey. I I was um, I have a um, I have a background in both fine arts as well as uh, a jewelry apprenticeship union, you know, trade shop background. And and I tell people that my knowledge of the jewelry industry is about a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, when I started out, I was the only woman and first woman in pretty in every place I ever worked other than, you know, administrative people. And as, as a consequence, um, I wasn't entirely welcomed. And so the guys kept throwing all the weird shit at me mm-hmm. uh, and to set me up to fail. They'd uh-huh. hand me a piece of costume jewelry to see if I would melt that. And then they would hand me a platinum bracelet to see if I could screw that up. And 
um, as a consequence, I ended up with a broad range of skills. And uh, I worked in busy street shops, you know, servicing pawn shops where, you know, sometimes you'd have to, like, wipe the blood off the jewelry before you worked on it. Wow, you know? really? Yeah, these guys would come in with these burglar bags, you know, and, oh. you know, a couple of pounds of scrap gold with grandma rings and say, melt this down and make me a Mercedes, life-size Mercedes emblem, you know? Oh, my goodness. Um, and Creepy. Yeah, oh, very creepy. And then I worked um, in... Uh, uh, I did, you know, I worked in retail. I was a liturgical silversmith for a while. So uh, where I fell in love with raising and forging, and I still have the guns, you know. Yeah, girl. All these years later, as do you from blacksmithing. That's right. It's yeah, been a while, but yeah. yeah. I, I love going to I don't know the, if we ever lose those blacksmith muscles. They, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I love going to the gym and wearing a tank top as a 67-year-old woman and having the teenage boys look at me. And, <laughs> so, you know that's awesome yeah. i love that joe <laughs> <laughs> but anyway and i also worked in mass manufacturing uh, but you know that sort of repetitive work really takes a toll on you and by the time i hit my mid 30s uh towards my late mid 30s uh or a little later um my hands and body started to give out and so i um decided that i would get a work smarter not harder and so I started charging more and making doing custom work and mm. and as as my hands got more and more tired and my eyes got worse I just kept raising my prices until you know the demand met my what I felt I could comfortably do at, okay, yeah. at this point I'm 67 my husband Timothy Green is uh, going to be 61 soon and so we do, at this point, maybe one or two pieces a month out of our studio total. Um, but we charge plenty for them. So and that, yeah. we do have a certain reputation. And we, over the years, our clientele has uh, turned into the um, uber-wealthy uh, the invisible rich, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, they, they don't fly first class. They have their own planes. Right. And they don't buy brands, you know, they don't, they, they, everything is bespoke. Oh, nice shirt, dude. Where'd you get that? Oh, uh, I have a tailor in London. Wow. You know, and, yeah. and so we're that guy. How for, did you guys for, get into that? Or what do you attribute that to? Um, Just longevity slash... Longevity, Skill. and Tim and I both uh, were among the last of the Mohicans. Uh, in our generation, we were the last of the people who served formal apprenticeships. And we both learned from old European masters as well as American masters, guys who learned between World War I and World War II. Mm. Uh, and we've had the wonderful pleasure of working with uh, uh, camp survivors, death camp survivors, uh, in, and including uh, later in our career working with uh, uh, Cambodian and Vietnamese camp survivors. Um, wow. And I find that the jewelers that we worked with who had to work under these incredibly difficult and primitive conditions are the best goldsmiths in the world mm. because they could make something beautiful with a, a chunk of you know, a sharpened, nail rusty or, nail yeah. and, and a rock, you know, right? and two files. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Uh, but yeah, I, so, I, and 
uh, and also, Tim and I are both, uh, like most good jewelers, we're uh, uh, obsessive-compulsive and a little anal-retentive. You know, does anal-retentive have a hyphen? Hell yes, and we put it there. <laughs> and, and we both have a really good eye for minutiae, and, and are, we're obsessed with craftsmanship as well as art. Um, and so we tend to still do old world things like we can still hand fabricate platinum, do azuring underneath bead set stones. Mm. Every piece we make is every bit as beautiful, if not more beautiful on the back than it is on the front. Mm. And our clientele expect that. They really expect the very best from us. And we love mm. giving it to them. There's something so satisfying uh, about making beautiful things. Yeah. I, I can't, you know, I, I tell people if I got hit today by a bus, I, the world doesn't owe me a damn thing because wow. I've been paid not a lot of money, but because we certainly don't live the lifestyle of our clientele. Uh, we're kind of like, you know, Rolls Royce coach builders. We're the guys in the back with the dirty fingers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, but enough. It's enough. The, the, right? But I've been paid a living wage to to make beautiful, beautiful things. Some of which I know will live beyond my lifetime. Hmm. When in in the years that I've worked in the trade, when I've come across a really beautiful old piece of jewelry and look at it closely to work on it, and I can see the file mark or 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 a maker's mark or or some little extra thing that the jeweler has done I, that I love seeing that footprint and and I know that although a lot of the bigger and more important pieces we've made have probably get melted down and the stones repurposed I know there are a few pieces that I've made that I know will turn into family heirlooms that mm. this woman wore this for her wedding and her daughter will wear it for her wedding and her daughter will wear it for her wedding mm -hmm. and um, I I love the idea of of the legacy of, of my work living yeah. on. Yeah. Um, I have a, a, a both a fine arts background as well as a technical and and uh, trade shop background. Uh, my late mother was a chemist and she was a gender pioneer. Uh, she was born in 1917, went to college at 15 at LSU to study chemistry. Uh, only because her parents thought at 14 she was too young to go away to school. Mm. And she was a gender pioneer in chemistry in the 1930s. And she was a, and part of the, and she has a really strong science and engineering background. Mm. Uh, she was also a card counter. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, and spoke, you know, multiple languages. She was just, not just beautiful, but brilliant. Amazing. And she, um, and in our family, we have a saying that the mechanical ability and engineering skills are matrilineal. Uh, my uh, brother and my late father and my son, if you handed any one of those men a wrench, you just got to run away because <laughs> somebody's going to bleed. And, and so, and I grew up, and my older brother's a scientist, and I, and I grew up in a household where there was a periodic table, you know, right. on, the, on the dining room wall. And my late father was an artist, and a very good one, a very fine uh, painter. His name was Alan Hamer. He did a lot of famous book covers. He did George Orwell's 1984 and The Ugly American. Uh, and uh, from the 19... 
30s through the 1960s. He Hmm. uh, did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of book covers. Uh, So I grew up with this huge library uh, because he would trade signed first editions for original artwork. And I grew up around paintings and art, and and although we never had much money, we were culturally wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. Mm. And from the time I was two, I knew I was going to be an artist. I just... Two years old. There was no question. That's that's what I was going to do. And my older brother, I think from the time he was two, he was going to be a scientist. Um, But both of us got a nice blend of of arts and science. And the thing I love about jewelry is that I can get my science geek on and I can get my art geek on at the same time. Um, Educationally, uh, I failed to impress my primary and secondary education teachers. Uh, I'm profoundly dyslexic to the point where, until I was 40, I thought the sign of the devil was 999. And my brother came out for my 40th birthday, and he and our younger sister, the, the, the sopran- professional soprano, we were sitting around telling jokes that only we think are funny mm-hmm. and most people are horrified by. And my brother said, <laughs> oh, 667, the neighbor of the beast. And I went, you mean 998? And my sister and brother looked at me and said, well, Joe, what's the sign of the devil? I went, well, 999, everyone knows that. Um, and I didn't learn to read until I was almost through second grade. So um, I was targeted as a retarded child in the 1950s. Ah, oh, did they and, actually use this term? Oh, they yes, ma'am. They used the R word in those days. It was They didn't say special ed or special needs. We were retarded. My older brother was also targeted as retarded in kindergarten. Now, you understand he has a, a, a Ph.D. in genetics and, and speaks about a dozen languages at the same time. Um, and I don't, but um, lucky for me, I uh, stumbled into jewelry making. Uh, like I said before, I've said many times before, uh, people say, well, how did you become a jeweler? And I say, well, like all of the most important life-changing and, and defining decisions in your life, it was just dumb luck. I, had, I was at my third high school before I dropped out. Wow. And, they, and I knew I was going to be an artist, or, and, but I didn't want to be a two-dimensional artist because I didn't want to compete with my father and his reputation and his skills. And so I thought I'd be a sculptor. Mm-hmm. And I was doing wood sculpture, and I love wood. It's unctuous and warm. And then I transferred to school in my senior year, um, and they didn't have a wood shop for the third high school I went to. And, but they did have a metal shop. And they said, well, we got jewelry and medals. And I said, well, I'd like to try that. And school had, I was a month late starting school. School had started a month before. And they said, well, you have all these set projects you're going to have to do before the end of the year. And, mm-hmm. and you're a month behind. And you probably won't be able to keep. I said, well, let me just give it a shot. And, and, my, and so they said, I'll try it for a week. And if I can't keep up, they'll... I'll take something else. And the minute I had the tools in my hand, the heavens parted, 
the angels came down I'm and just sang. Seeing, I'm ah, seeing it over your head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The light, be- light uh-huh. beams came yeah. bursting through the sky, and I, within a week or so, I'd caught up with the class. And by the end of that term, uh, before the holiday break, I, I had completed all the assignments wow. for the year and had sold, went down to the local head shop, because this is 1969, and sold every, I sold the first piece I made and, and I never went back. And uh, the great lesson I learned from my father, uh, all of us learned from our father was uh, that making art for a living is a good, clean, honest living. Mm-hmm. It's it's a job. It's work. And I never had... And also, he was a consummate craftsmanship. He was an old world... He studied fine arts in the 19... I think in 1930, 29 or 30, he studied at the Sorbonne in Paris, which was a pretty exciting time to be there. Uh, I was there for a couple of years. And so he had wonderful old school, old world techniques. And he was obsessed with not just art and expression and design, but fine craftsmanship Mm. and loved fine craftsmanship of any kind, regardless of the media, Mm. Uh, even just writing. And as a book cover illustrator, of course, was just in awe of of great writers. Mm. And so... In our household, it was, I'm an artist. I painted this painting. Do you like it? Good. Pay me. I've got a wife and three kids to support. And as a consequence, my older brother, although he's a scientist, he makes a fine sideline living his entire adult life playing music, just showing up and saying, pay me. And my younger sister, her full-time job is a soprano. Hmm. And, you know, and it's just like, and people ask my sister and I and my brother, well, how do you guys get all these artistic and music gigs? And hmm. we just say, well, we show up and we tell people to pay us. <laughs> and I think... Ask for what you're worth. Yeah. And since I'm at the end of my career, I've been teaching a lot. And I spend as much time explaining to my students how to charge for their work and how to promote themselves mm-hmm. as I do about how to do the actual jewelry mm-hmm. making. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of them just look at me, you know, like I'm on crack. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I'm an artist. I have to suffer for my art. And I go, ah, no. no, you don't. Who made that rule up? Who, yeah, who made that? No. Exactly. Time to break that rule. Yeah. yeah, long past time. My father used to say, no, when I'm unhappy, I make lousy art. And it's true, although I do have to say that um, uh, art does save lives. Because quite frankly, uh, considering my educational or lack of, you know, formal education and uh, my uh, uh, odd brain wiring, if I hadn't learned how to make jewelry when I was 17 years old, I'd probably, frankly, be living in a trailer somewhere hmm. with five children by five different men. Wow, <laughs> Working the night shift at a 7-Eleven. Oh, my goodness. You know, and riding the bus to work. That's quite polar opposite from where you're at. It, it really is. Uh, my parents, at the end of, you know, of the first term of jewelry class at, at this high school, my jewelry teacher said, Joe, you have to stay after class. Um, 
your parents are coming down and we're going to go talk to your counselor. And I went, oh, shit, I'm in it now. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I, I was on the dean's list, but not the good one. You right. know? <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm in for it. And oh, she no. marched me into the counselor's office and my parents were there. And she just said, Joe was meant to do this. She was made for this. And she said, we're mm. wasting her time here. Wow. And good counselor. And she and my uh, counselor said, you know, you've got enough credits that if you take an, this oral e exam and uh, take an ACT uh, test, and I'd already taken an SAT test, they said, um, we can get you into the medals program at the University of Oregon wow. uh, a year early. And so I. I was on cloud nine I bet. and my parents were thrilled because they were concerned that I was never going to amount to anything because I just didn't have Couldn't find your, your place or your voice. Well, I knew my place was going to be as an artist, but they were thrilled to death to see that I had really excelled at something and that, and that for people with fine arts degrees, jewelers, we probably tend to be, more of us tend to make a living doing what we studied in art school than other painters and, yep. and sculptors do. And, um, and like I say, I'm just, I am the luckiest woman in the world. It's so awesome. I would do this stuff on the weekends for free if yeah. I didn't have, if I weren't yeah. a jeweler. Really and truly. And, of course, my mother was thrilled because she got this beautiful jewelry collection. My mom loved it when I became a jeweler, too. Oh, she yeah. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Here's uh, my order. <laughs> uh, earlier this year, I was at Idlewild uh, this spring teaching. And, and you're supposed to, on the first day there, you're supposed to get up and give it. I love teaching there, by the way. If you ever get I've a heard gig, it's gorgeous. Go, oh, yeah. I love it. Anyway, they. Uh, this is my second go around there. And at... On the first night, all the teachers have to get up and give a talk. And our, our and our student assistants, they give you a student assistant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. You get, you get a minion. <laughs> and, and the minions get up first and show their work, and then they introduce their teacher. And mm -hmm. and then the teacher has a slideshow, and I, we talk about our work. And, yeah. and they wanted titles for everything and an artist statement. And... I, I don't know about you, but every time someone asks me to write an artist statement, I kind of puke in my mouth a I little. I think everybody has, yeah. And has I, I just said, well, can I just say I, I did this because it's pretty and I like it? Yeah. But anyways, but I had to come up with titles for the slides that I was showing. And and <laughs> and, and the last piece I showed was um, a piece that I had made for my mother for her 80th birthday. And... It was a beautiful piece. It was a three-color cameo, an antique uh, Edwardian-era cameo of uh, Diana, the hunting goddess, and this chariot of horses, and the background is lavender and white with brown highlights. And I mounted it in a oval 18-karat gold setting surrounded by pearls and and uh, square diamonds set on end to be, you know, the chevron wow. shape. And... Oh, it's all fancy engraved on the back to, uh, with her initials and lots of foofy engraved on the back mm -hmm. that mostly just hides the pits where I soldered the pegs, you know, right. for the posts. Because, uh, you know. And, Got to put and, something there. <laughs> and, I, and the title of the piece, I put that up, and it was strung on some beautiful pastel lavender and pink and white pearls. And, 
and there was this gasp in the audience, you know, <gasps> and and the title of it was called The Legacy, and I said, well, I, I call this The Legacy because I say, towards the end of my mother's life, I started making her pieces of jewelry that I wanted to inherit. Ha! <laughs> that's not and, selfish, that's selfful. Yeah, it yeah. is. And, yes. uh, and my sister, you know... Uh, and I, you know, I'd make a, one year I'd make a piece for myself, and then for like eighty-one or eighty-two, mm-hmm. like Nan, what do you want? Nan says, well, you know that that amethyst she has. If you'd remount that into, some, you know, make something really nice out of that for her, yeah, right. I'd, I'd, I'd wear it. Oh, how fun! I know it's well, terrible. the best moms out there too. I've had, actually had a, a friend of mine's mother that we've known each other for since junior high, high school. She came to me with her air, you know, her pieces, and she said, you know, I know Natalie's not going to wear this stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's start making things that, you know, she's going to want to inherit out of my old pieces. And that was a really fun project. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I love what you're saying about the air. I completely resonate with that. I, I think it's why I never did production. I've always done custom is that one-on-one kind of and the importance of the heirloom pieces or the engagement ring, you know. I love, 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 love. It's funny, jewelers fall into two categories, those who love to do custom work and those who loathe it. Yes, agreed. I love it um, because, I, well, A, I like people. And um, I'm lucky enough that I've learned how to draw realistic-looking little renderings mm-hmm. quickly and easily. My, my husband and I both... I think a lot of our success as custom jewelers comes from the fact that we can sit down with a little sketchbook mm-hmm. and a pencil and an eraser and maybe a little white highlight something and 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 say we have a couple comes to us for an engagement ring I go so you know what's your budget do you want yellow or white what kind of a stone do you have and then I say well and then when I get an idea of what they're looking at or the, what they want, because people research these things online and show up with pictures. And then, so I look at them and I go, so, tell me, how did you two meet? Or what, was you, what did you do on your first date? And by the time they're done arguing about who wore what and who made the first move and, and, and oh, I, I hated you at first sight, or, you know, and, but then your shoes were cool, and, and <laughs> you know, and you get these Story. great stories, and that kills 20 minutes. And in 15, 20 minutes, I can sketch something that looks like it pops off the page. Mm. And custom jewelry is like repair. It's, I think David Geller once said, it's trust sensitive, not price sensitive. And if you can draw something in a matter of minutes that looks realistic, Mm. even if it's not exactly what they want, but close, uh, they trust you to be able to make the piece. Right. And unlike CAD, it's right there. It's instant. Mm -hmm. And they, they don't have to wait two weeks for the CAD sketch to come through yes. and to be ordered out and then yeah. check the model. Uh, well, it's and, a little less, it's more personal. Yeah. Yeah, to sketch right there, do a live render. Oh, absolutely. What a skill to have. Yeah. One of my favorite workshops I teach is, is how to draw realistic jewelry. And I, you know, Tim and I will, when we have a custom client, we just do one or two quick little black and white sketches. And, and because if you give them too many options, it's, you know, they get they start getting confused yeah. and you really have to also as a custom jeweler you have to take control of the situation you have to say i'm the artist i'm the expert i'm the designer 
And because people come in saying, well, I want, uh, oh, well, we had a client who wanted for his wet wife's wedding ring. Uh, well, I'd like, uh, she wants an opal center stone and emerald side stones and a light fish, t- you know. Yeah. And I said, well. All negative I on said, the most. Well, <laughs> you know, it might work as long as she's not like a, a, a rock climber or an emergency room physician. And, and her fiance looked at me and said, well, in fact, she's both. Oh, you're kidding me. No. What and are the so odds? So we ended up going with uh, 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 a fire agate because she wanted a phenomena stone, a fire agate yes. and some tougher and some, I think, green sapphire, something yeah. tough. Then, and we configured the mounting. But How fun. But, you know, so many. Uh, and, I, and I usually don't take a class client, custom client, unless they know pretty much what they want. Whenever some, I'm sure you've had this happen. Well, what would you like me to make for you? Well, I don't know. You're the artist. Do right. whatever you want. Yeah. As long as it's pretty and I like it. <laughs> and then uh, I go, well, well, tell me what you want. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I'll know it when I see it. Wow. This yeah. is when you jump up and run away yeah. Yeah. as fast as you can. And I have to say, uh, a lot of young people and newbies ask me, you know, what would you say to yourself 50 years ago? What did you wish somebody had told you? And I, I'd say, when to say no. Learn when to say no. When to say no. And also just, I, I wish I had learned earlier on how to read body language. Hmm. Um, I've gotten quite deaf in the last decade or so. So I've gotten quite good at reading body language. Hmm. And that's really useful yeah. when, you're, when you're dealing one-on-one with, with, because when people are buying jewelry, they're, nervous yeah they're about to spend a huge sum of money and when you deal with the uber wealthy like tim and i do they are often a little paranoid they're worried that everyone's out to rip them off right and you just have to learn to read the body language Mm -hmm. and and often we'll talk about everything but the jewelry yeah you know well you got to build a trust yeah, build up trust and, you know, ask them, you know, again, how did you meet and or what was your first date like? And suddenly the couple is going from being nervous and uptight to reminding themselves about how and why they fell in love mm-hmm. and that this is a romantic journey. Yeah. Why, why, why are we here? Yeah. Why are we yeah. here? Yeah. yeah. And or and and. And, and then when that fails, I ask them about their pets or their children. Break the ice. And something come, that they yeah. want to talk about and, and feel, sure. and makes them feel good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just to get them away. And I, and I find that m- most men are, and I'm going to be kind of gender specific here, um, and I don't mean to be, but often men are much more interested in what it, what it's going to cost and the color and grade of the stone and the women just want to know if it's going to look beautiful on her yeah that's that's it pretty much mm-hmm. um and i and tim and i are big advocates of marriage equity for a variety of reasons not not the least of which is um a it's the right thing mm-hmm. a and b some young people aren't getting are delaying getting married and not spending a lot of money on jewelry. Uh, heterosexual couples are, mm-hmm. and or as gay couples, getting married to them. This is a big deal. Mm-hmm. This is a big step. This yeah. is a big deal. It's important to them. And also, you have hmm, two incomes, no children, 
and they have much better taste than most uh -huh. people do. <laughs> oh, how fun. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It and is. It's a different dynamic, I would say. It's a totally different yeah. dynamic, and I love it because mm -hmm. these it, this really matters to them. Right. This it, really matters. It's really important. It's been something that everybody's been fighting for for a long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. So to be able to actually sit, you know, I had two, two young men come in and sit, and they were very uncomfortable in the beginning. They thought, is it okay? Do you do this for, would you do this for us? I mean, it was very, a very different experience. Oh, yeah. Um, trying to get, you know, to initiate that conversation. And of course, you know, immediately just put them at ease. Oh my gosh, of course. Yeah. Happy to. And now we do, you know, where couples can come and, you know, make their own engagement oh, yeah. rings and have that experience together. And it's so fun to, to have oh, yeah, yeah, really yeah, any yeah. couple come in and do that, you know. So I'm going to ask you a dumb question. When you oh. got married to your husband, did you make did you make the Yeah, <laughs> I did. I and, did. and how many hours before the wedding did you finish them? Oh, my gosh, girl. It was probably within a couple of days, honestly. Um, oh, you want to hear about that story really quick? And then I want to hear how you and Tim met, actually, as well. How did we meet? Yeah. Uh, through the trade. Okay. I figured, yeah. Yeah. We, was it in school um, or no? Uh, pardon? Was it during your apprenticeship or well, yeah, I was, yeah, we were, had pretty much finished up our apprenticeships. We were a little yeah. bit older when we met. Okay. Uh, I met Tim, I want to say, at West Coast Findings, and I think it was in 1970, let me think, no, late 70s or early 80s, and I was uh, uh, separated from my second ex-husband. I'm on my third and favorite. Your husband, my friend yeah, calls Yeah, this you. one's lasted a while. <laughs> And uh, West Coast Findings, uh, John Vesaway, who has uh, down in the Willamette building here, uh, he and uh, a colored stone broker, Fine Cut Gems and Tel Aviv Diamonds, they were having a grand opening. And the Willamette building uh, was a jeweler's building full of jewelry shops. And Tim and some friends of his had a studio on the eighth floor uh, doing custom work. And I was working in a trade shop on the sixth floor. And we met at the opening. And... Uh, and immediately hit it off. Yeah. Uh, because, and we're kind of alternative sorts of people. And the, it, at that time, um, I was just getting out of a divorce, and he was married to a, a wonderful woman um, who just passed away in December, my wife in law, Sherry Heiser. Hmm. Uh, and she and I were, we became really good friends. And Tim, and I ended up, be, we were jewelry compadres, good friends, and I mean, to the point where if I had no place to go for Thanksgiving or Christmas, I went to Tim and Cherie's house. Mm. And they, um, and Tim and I, I remember one day I showed up in his house and we were hanging out and I was wait, we were waiting for something to cook in the oven and I sketched something out on a piece of paper and Tim looked at that sketch and he said, did I show you my drawing? I, it was a Mokame, It was a ring with Mokame Gane inlay. Uh -huh. And I said, did I show you that sketch for my... I said, no. And he went back into his studio uh, that he had at home and came out with a sketch that was pretty much identical to mine. Whoa. Uh -huh. And we were friends, and then we ended up becoming studio mates and business partners and friends for 13 years wow. before we ever became a couple. Hmm. And uh, Tim and Shri divorced after about 15 years, and 
uh, were separated for a while, and then we were actually housemates, and you know, wow. for a while, and then uh, I kept fixing him up, and then he moved back in with a Cherie, and then they gave it another try, and it didn't work out, and and I kept fixing him up with my girlfriends and my <laughs> housemates. We were sharing a studio, and at that point in time, we'd been invited to run the shop at Zell Brothers Jewelers, which is a venerable old store here in Portland, mm. uh, where all you know it was the fanciest store. It took an entire city, half a city block, and was you know there was an entire floor just for crystal and china, and another one for art glass and stationery, and it was a, a remarkable place. It, lasted nearly a hundred years wow and we got to work with some amazing old school european masters uh including tim's uncle bob uh Ackeson, who started there in like 1956 and anyway we we'd been and i kept fixing them up like i said with my girlfriends and my studio mates and then uh finally one day tim said uh, a couple of years after he and sharia had finally split up he says well what about you and me? And I went, what? You know, <laughs> are you kidding me? I said, but you're, you're, you're my best friend's ex-husband. And right. he said, I said, what about Cherie? He said, oh, well, I talked to her about that last October. I gave her a call and I called her up and we had a heart to heart. And she said, oh, no, you know, I wow. can't think of anybody, you know, oh. else that I would rather. And um, that's amazing. And I told Tim, I said, hey, I still think of you as you know my best friend and my business partner and my other best friend's ex-husband I said ask me again in six months right let it, me wrap my head time. around this uh -huh. and, and that's the first time in my life I've ever played hard to get <laughs> and by then I was in my mid-40s oh Joe <laughs> by then, oh yeah by the time by then I was in my mid-40s and he um we were down and then we started dating and then we were down in Louisiana visiting my mother, and, and she took me aside, and she said, Joe, we need to have a little girl-to-girl -girl talk. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, T-Y-U-M, T-Y-U-M, two syllables, as right. you well know in the South, T-Y-U-M and Freyed. Uh -huh. T-Y-U-M has asked me for your hand in marriage. And I went, oh, mother. I'm, you know, 45 years old. That's cute. I don't want to get married again. I've been down that road. I've got... I've got a perfectly good career. I mean, I love uh, the guy and everything, but how do I get married right. again? And she said, well, honey, she said, I think you should marry him because he reminds me a lot of your father. Mm -hmm. And mind you, at that point in time, Tim had a braid down to his waist and, you know, a full body tattoo and earrings as big as my pinky, you know, <laughs> through his ears. <laughs> and my mother at the time was, you know, in, in her late 70s and... and Tim's ex-wife, Cherie, was 20 years older than he is. Uh, she just passed away last year at 80. Wow. And, and I said, oh, mother, I blah, blah, blah. I don't want to blah, blah, blah. And, and finally she looked at me and she said, honey, if you don't take him, I will. Ah! <laughs> well, oh I goodness. thought, oh, i got to jump on that. Yeah. So, Whoa, I, hang you on. know, I said, well, I suppose. Okay, I guess we'll get married. Right. And then... We were working at Zell Brothers and cheek by jowl, and um, he came up one day with an envelope, a job envelope with a salesperson's handwriting for Juliet Schmidt, a nice Jewish girl, you know, and and there was a two-carat Burmese ruby, cabochon ruby, and a bunch of natural 
untreated canary diamonds. Mm. And he says, Joe, I got this gig for Juliet Schmidt, you know, Dr. Schmidt's wife, and, and I got carte blanche on the design and blah, blah, blah. And so he started building this ring uh, in platinum and 22 karat gold and, 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 you know, had to car as you well know, as a jeweler, he had to carve the platinum part and cast that first. And he was working away on the platinum part and the center of the top was getting kind of thin. And I was watching him carve it. I said, you know, you better back off on that. You're going to break that wax right there. And as you well know, that sound, the yeah. snick. When uh, you break. And he says, oh, yeah, go back to your bench. Go back to work. Leave me yeah. alone here. Uh-huh. And <laughs> across the crowded room, I could hear a minute later, snick. I got up from my bench. I walked across the room a good 15, 20 feet. And stood next to his bench and did this little nanner, 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 <laughs> told you so, ha, ha, ha. I literally did a little dance there. Uh-huh. And he's and he patched it up. And he made me deliver it to tech form, you know, to uh-huh. Teresa Free out at tech form for the, for the platinum casting and picked it up later. Uh-huh. And then he uh, started adding the 22, you know, waxing in where it was going to be gold and, and got that done. And then... Um, and he was about two-thirds finished, and he was already bead-setting the diamonds, because mm. you do that first. And I had to leave town. I was at that time making part of my living as a guitar player. And I had was going to be in Paris for a month playing gigs with a friend of mine who was a pretty well-known musician over there. That's a whole other bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. And I left town, and just before I left town, he was bead-setting the diamonds. And one of them had, one of those little natural canaries had fluoresced. You know, this fluorescence blue, not blue, it was a, a yellowy, greeny, kind of an infected snot color. <laughs> and all the other diamonds were so pretty and so bright and sparkly, uh. and this one just went, Ugh. I said, yeah. oh, honey, that looks like shit. Uh-huh. Mrs. Schmidt's going to hate that. All she's ever going to see when she looks at that is that just piece of crap. Get it out of there. And he says, <laughs> And so I left, and I was in Paris for three weeks playing music and sleeping on my friend's floor. And Tim showed up in Paris <laughs> for the last week of the tour and presented me with that ring. Oh, Wow. Really? And, yeah. Oh, wow. And I thought, well, now I have to marry the man. Oh, my goodness. It was the most beautiful thing. And, of course... Persistent. The, and I have to tell you, know, the whole store knew, my mother knew, my sister knew, everybody but me knew. It was, I was completely gobsmacked. Uh-huh. And the first thing that went through my brain, of course, is this is the most romantic thing anybody has ever... He even azured out underneath the diamonds little Paris raindrops, right? Oh, my goodness. And... I'm thinking, this is the most romantic thing anyone has ever done for me in my life. And I said, you know, honey, you got dispensation here. If you want to give me a lawnmower for Christmas, you're... Right, you just cover the next three and years. Of- then the second thought that immediately went through my head was, oh, shit, I got to come up with something for him. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Oh, now I have, and, now I have you know, to see these and pieces. And he set the bar really high. Gonna, we're going to have to share pictures of these rings later, Jeff. And I did, and yeah. I made him a, a lovely piece. And uh-huh. I want you to know, mm-hmm. uh, despite our reputation as world-class procrastinators, you know, why put off till tomorrow, what can wait till next month, we actually had our rings ready at least a month in advance before we got Good there. for you. Way better than we did. Yeah. yeah. Well, my, yeah, compared to, you know, 
our usual MO, which is, you know, right. that they're on their way to the ceremony and, and we're yeah. wiping the water off from the steamer and it's still warm. It's, like <laughs> it's going still hot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had that happen once. I, I, was, uh, I was invited to a friend's wedding and, and I was making the rings and, and my date came to, my plus one came to pick me up and I said, I got to run into the studio real quick. I got to polish this ring. Mm-hmm and finish it up before we go and I'm in my you know silk dress and heels and he's in a suit and tie and and I'm trying not to get you know anything on my dress so I'm polishing this ring up very quickly and I throw it in the sonic and has to sit for a minute and get ready to get steamed and my my date's looking at his watch going hurry up hurry up we gotta go we're gonna be late we're gonna be late hurry up hurry and I went dude relax they can't start without us right They'll wait, I promise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. We made it in time. Oh, how fun. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing story, Joe. Thanks for sharing that yeah. with me. Thank you. Yeah, that's so cool. And it is fun when jewelers are marrying jewelers. We, I mean, what do you do? I, I looked at my husband. I said, well, honey, I can't make my own ring. That would just be weird, you know. And Did he, he said, make it for you? He said, no, you're not making it. He's a carpenter. And so he said, nope, I'm coming in. You're going to show me how to carve wax and... Oh, I'm carving yours, you know, so, and he did, yeah, and it's simple, and I love it, I mean, it's, I've been, you know, I'm playing with it right now, it's kind of stuck on my finger, I think, Port- oh, a fidgeter, yeah, am I, sw- I, maybe I'm swelling in Portland, I don't know, but yeah, now yeah. here, it's just this little, you know, it's just a little ring, but it's got his touch on it, and I love it, and, um, oh, it's lovely, yeah, he did a good job, he did do a he's good a job, he's a good carpenter, he's a good carver already, and so he just sat down and nailed it, you know, um, but he's a renaissance man. He can oh, kind of yeah. touch anything and do, yeah. Of course, Joe's sitting here looking at the back where I sized it, and you can see the line. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You caught that you right know. away. <laughs> when I was running the shop at Zell Brothers, it. my nickname was Mrs. Picky Pants. Well, you have to be. You're right. Craftsmanship Well, well that's what everything. they called me to my face anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good, you know, get a tattoo. Why not? Make a bumper sticker for Joe with that one. So along with Joe's, um, you guys can hear her bracelets. The, these are, you're going to have to tell us the bracelet story. I love these. The jangle of your bracelets. Oh, sorry. Is that no, interfering with I, the mics? I yeah. actually kind of like it. I was just make, you know, making an observation. But Deb, um, Deb I'm calling oh, you. These I was about to call salvaged. you Deb Stoner because of the glasses that you're wearing. Cause you, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're homemade. Yes. Yeah. Joe, jo, and I, when I was looking at your website, I noticed that you're doing... Are you still doing eyewear? Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, Yes, ma'am. It's hard to carve out the time to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I, at the end of my career, I'm just, well, my father was a portrait painter, so I love faces and I love how they work. Mm. And I know how to work with them. And Mm -hmm. I've been wearing glasses since I was in the third grade. So, and and that was in an era when men don't make passes at girls that wear glasses. I uh, got my eyes tested, and you know I can only see the giant E at the top of the chart, and <laughs> and I ended up with these horrible uh. horn-rimmed glasses, and and my dad came home from work that night, and I was in tears, you know, I said, I'm ugly, I can't go to school like this, no man will ever marry me, <laughs> and and bless his heart, he went into his studio, and about two months later came back and I'll show you a picture sometime or if I'll see if I can find it on my phone. He did a painting of this beautiful, beautiful semi-nude woman uh, from the waist up, you know, with her hands across her chest, uh, gazing into a mirror uh, with, uh, you know, with glasses on to show me that women can be beautiful and wear glasses. And and he loved really smart women, Mm. especially. So, um, and and 
uh, and I just, I still have that painting and I still love it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, and it's just face jewelry. Yeah. Um, and I and I love working with people's faces, and and I and mm-hmm. also I love the challenge of the engineering. Uh, Deb Stoner uh, taught me how to make glasses. Okay, so you did work with Deb. Oh yeah. man, she, I saw her work like twenty five years ago, and went, yeah. wow, someday I want to learn how to do that. And now that I'm at the end of my career, I'm just doing things I really want to do. Uh, that and teaching. I, I feel like I'm in a race against time right now because Tim and I really are the last of the Mohicans. We're the last ones that know all these old world, old school techniques. Um, and I'm having a hard time finding young people mm. to teach. I've been teaching at the Multnomah Arts Center, but and I love teaching and I love my students, mm-hmm. uh, but, but they're mostly older ladies who are empty nesters and I'm teaching them all these old things and old world craftsman skill sets that mm-hmm. um, that yeah. they can't get from people with MFAs you know uh, who are I'm the, the only teacher there I think that doesn't have an MFA or a college degree even though I did a little time in college mm-hmm. and um, and they're wonderful artists and designers and and thinkers and but but their skill sets are pretty limited and and it's killing me that that most of the people I'm teaching will never use these skills and so I love to get my hands on some young people but um, I'm running into kind of class snobbery Hmm. I can teach your kid how to make beautiful things Hmm. and to make a living family wage in five years they'll get paid to learn they'll get paid shit to learn but they'll get paid to learn Mm -hmm. and It'll be a tough five years, but in five years, they can earn a living family wage. Oh, no, I don't want my kid to work with their hands. They're going to go to college. Mm -hmm. And too many people are drinking the university Kool-Aid. And and so many people don't know that there are opportunities to learn from individual craftsmen out there. And instead, they go to a university and... Mm -hmm. um, and end up $100,000 in debt by the time they have an MFA, and they don't have any practical right. skills. Real-life bench skills. They have to yeah. start over from scratch. Yeah. This is a big conversation right now um, oh. that keeps recurring, and especially through these interviews, Joe, that I've been doing, it just seems to be a real common thread that keeps coming up. and. Um, probably partially because I'm the one doing the interviews, but I also, I'm an educator and I run a school, you know, I run creative side and I, I find it, it's just started raining here, guys. It's so beautiful. Like we have, this is a great little spot. We're sitting by these just three windows and the rain just started falling. It's just telling us her story and I love it. But Um, yeah, uh, Nan Allen, um, Nan's Holland. Yeah, Nan yes. Holland. And, mm-hmm. and MJSA are, are doing their best to... Yes, the Be a Jeweler. To, yeah, the BeAJeweler.com. Are you involved with that, Joe? Are you, um, are actually, you a mentor? Actually, I, I was in her book. Um, yes, that's right. Uh, my husband and I both ended up in her book. Um, I am not in a position to take on formal apprentices because I don't have enough work. Because, in, in like I said, we only do one or two pieces right. a, a month. So yeah. I can't hire somebody and pay them workman's comp and Social Security and all that. Mm. Um, so I've been mostly just teaching privately, mm-hmm. one-on-one. Uh, but I'm in a, but like I said, I'm in a race against time. Uh, probably 
only have a few good years left, and I need to impart this stuff as yeah. much as I possibly can. Mm. Uh, there are so many weird little tips and tricks and things you learn after 50 years in the trade mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. with a, as broad a range of skills as I have um, that uh, my students are, are gobsmacked. I mean, they're, they're just in shock. And when I, uh, when, when I teach at Multnomah Arts Center, we, we have our individual classes. And then we also do open studios on the weekends. Mm -hmm. and, and the students who come in on the weekend open studios that I'm there, uh, I've, are, they start, if they know that I'm teaching that day, they start lining up mm -hmm. a half an hour before the doors open. Got all the tricks. Because yeah. they know that I'll, and they mostly come to me and say, well, I've been working on this piece, but I can't get this to solder. Mm -hmm. And I am... Solutions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell my students, you know, failure is not an option in my class. It's a requirement. <laughs> and the only reason that I'm a master goldsmith is because I have fucked up everything there is to fuck. <laughs> it's the only way to know how not. I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. what you call an expert. Uh-huh. And, and if I screw something up or if a student makes a horrible mistake, I just say, all right, now, do you want to turn this into a design element or are we going to hide it? Mm -hmm. Pick one. Right. And then we're just going to pretend like this Magic was part time. of the whole yeah. process. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, you know, you have to really, especially working in busy trade shops when things just, when, and doing repair work is the best education in the world. Because everything, every day, is a new challenge. Mm -hmm. And and you take a torch to something and it just pukes all over your bench because the last guy who worked on it put it together with extra easy six-carat yellow solder, you know? Yeah. And you just learn how to be fast on the balls of your feet. Right. And learn how to... Troubleshoot, figure it out, yeah. Yeah, how to uh -huh. troubleshoot, yeah. Yeah, how to get out of sticky spots. And what did one, one man that I apprenticed under short for a short while anyway... Um, told me he said being a jeweler is like being a mag magician sometimes you oh know. you know yeah. i often have said that you know how uh, magicians have that little flash powder that they put on their fingertips to make right, it and it's go, like poof yeah <laughs> I'd, I'd like to get my hands on that sometime and that's just hilarious go, your, and your ring ta-da poof, poof. Yeah. and here you go uh, <laughs> my my other my old jewelry professor max nixon at u of o who was deeply deeply beloved by so many people in the pacific northwest he once told me he said well my two favorite sayings of his were well jewelry is a salvage operation right <laughs> making jewelry is a salvage operation and the other one is he says well i don't teach jewelry so much as i teach humility that's it because oh, it melted down yep do it start again. over yeah and you know i loved going from the beauty i think one of the reasons why i made the switch from wood to metal was that if you mess something up in wood it's over right but with metal i was like, oh well, i can just melt this down and it's so malleable use it over again. yeah 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 absolutely and yeah so it's it's okay to, you know, mess up. And I do think it's, you know, oh. I worked in ceramics, I worked in glass, and every time I would drop a piece, it would break. Mm -hmm. And I hated that part of it. It just kind of drove me crazy. There's something about metal. It's just the, the malleability and the permanence of it. You know, run over it with your car and it's still okay. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, I just love that. And fire. I love well, we all I'm, love fire and shiny things. I'm, I'm happiest if I have a torch in one hand and a hammer in the <laughs> other. You know, those, that's my happy place, torches and hammers. I love it. I love it. Absolutely. I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Um, so, why, well, you kind of explained why jewelry just from our conversation, but is that why for you? Is it that per- that permanent? I don't know. Why why did you end up just resonating with metal? Do you think? I th- I think it, it's it's the permanence. Mm-hmm. It's the malleability. It's the ability to. Um, uh, I well, my mother had a good engineering background. So for me, it's 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 engineering. Combined I love engineering. Everything. I love science. I love metallurgy. Mm-hmm. I love geometry. Yeah. I love and with the art background, I love I love making beautiful things. That's my bottom line. I love that. Makes I, a lot I of really sense do. with your I background. Just, I love making beautiful things, and mm-hmm. I love, I love making people happy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I, I don't know. I like I said, the moment I had the tools in my hand, I beam of light. I just knew that this was. It was. I'll never forget that. It was. An, it was like a religious epiphany. Mm-hmm. It yeah. really and truly was. I don't know if it was it that way for you too. You know, I think. I think it was. I was very experimental. I was trying a lot of different things. Like I mentioned, glass, and I was a welder first, and a sculptor, and um, realized quickly that I needed to make something that was going to be a little easier to put on. It, it was more functional in, in a sense and that I could actually put to market and make a living. Like you said, I yeah. made a just decision. This is what I'm doing with my life. I want to do something creative. Um, sculpture was difficult to sell, though I did sell some sculptures and some pretty high-end stuff. And But, um, yeah, something about, I think of it as wearable sculpture, you know? Yeah. And I, yeah, so it, it definitely transformed. But I remember sitting at the bench carving wax for the first time. This was the first time ever. And I was casting before I knew how to carve wax because, I, again, I had a torch background, so I knew how, he said, well, let's yeah. throw you in there and you're going to cast gold and, you know, help me with the platinum and stuff. So um, I learned that hands-on. And then I sat at the bench after work one night with wax and I said, let me just see how this stuff works and started carving. And I looked at the clock and it was like 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> you know how that moment yeah. hits and it's like... <gasps> what happened? I have to be at work tomorrow. I better go home. And, uh, that was, I think when, when you realize time is not even an, a, you know, a factor in the experience of something, I think that's when you know, um, that, that you're doing something toward, in the right direction. Well, there's something, it's one of the factors. Th- there's something really, really important and fundamentally important to the human psyche about focused, creative work, focused industry or focused creative work. And um, I, uh, I have a home studio and, and I'll get up in the morning and make myself some coffee and then, you know, go down the basement stairs to turn things on and turn the steamer on and, and the lights on and waiting for things to warm up. And, and then I'll wander over to my bench to see what I need to be working on that day. And then the next thing I know, I look up, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm still in my pajamas. Mm-hmm. I haven't brushed my teeth or washed my <laughs> face. And my coffee has gone, there's about a quarter inch of cold, right. you know, yeah. coffee at the bottom of my cup. And, <laughs> and, um, it, it, it's, and, you know, there's a lot of drudgery involved in, in jewelry making, a lot of endless hours. And uh, I think... Also, to be a really good jeweler, your brain has to be wired 
a certain way. They, you really have to have the the the, wi- the brain wiring yeah. that that makes that enjoyable. Uh, probably the the single most talented student. Tim and I have ever taught a young woman named Allison Daggett uh, came to us. Uh, a local jewelry supplier said, "I've got I've got this girl who's been buying jewelry tools from me, and she's working in a denture, you know, a tooth crown factory." And and he said, "She's really smart, and mm-hmm. she's really good, and she's there. She's being wasted there." And can we hook you up? And I said, "Well, sure." And I met her, and and. She's high-functioning Asperger's. So socially, she's a little awkward. Mm-hmm. But she is, once you get to know her, she's, once you get her, you know, past her shyness, you know, uh, of her staring at, you know, when she, you know, she'll stare at her feet for a while. And then when she gets to know you and like you, she'll stare at your feet. Um, <laughs> and, but Aww. she, when you get to know her, she is hysterically funny. She's, I think she's got an IQ of about 160. Mm-hmm. And she was trapped by social services in this dead-end, minimum-wage, repetitive shop. And she had such a great eye for design and such a gift for art. And Tim and I sat her down, and, and I said, okay, here's how you set a diamond. And you know, here, you're going to build a solitaire and set a diamond, which is a hard thing to do. She did it perfectly. Wow perfectly the first time and I looked at Tim and Tim and I looked at that and we raised our eyebrows and we said okay now here's four crowns I want you to solder them all in a row they all have to be perfectly level the prongs all have to line up and she did that and it was perfect wow I said okay now you've got to set these four cubic zirconias and they all have to be level and the facets all have to line up and when she was done it was perfect. Wow. And so we called her parents up and said, she was meant to do this. You've got to get her out of that factory. She And um, she actually survived three years at a really busy street trade shop. Mm. Uh, I know it was hard on her. Uh, but, you know, your first year, and I told her, I said, you know, any young apprentice, or an I, I send them off to a trade shop, I go, your first year is really going to suck. But you're going to learn more in one year than you will in Ten right. by taking workshops or looking at videos or going to you know a college somewhere. And, yeah, and she took up hand engraving and oh my lord have mercy she's so good. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's she's a phenom quite frankly. It's one thing I love about this craft too is you you know you can have no use of your legs you can have one arm you you know you can have Aspergers you can be on the spectrum. And yep. you, you know, I would say there are some limitations out there. I've worked with some private students that, you know, they couldn't retain the information and you had to reteach every time. But there's, oh, there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of options in this craft for. I, I know for, people say, well, uh, I want to become a jeweler, and I go, well, what part? Do you want to be a gemologist? Do you want to be uh, an engraver? Do you want to be a stone setter? Do you want to be a custom? Do you want to do manufacturing? Mm -hmm. Do you want to do engineering? Um, There are so many different skill sets out there that are are useful in the different areas. Yeah, there's a lot of facets. Oh, boy, there sure is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pun intended, yeah. There there is, it's a huge (laughs) umbrella, and that's, I think, one of the reasons when the school began, it was like, there's still 13 years in, it's still easy to come up with new things to offer because there's so much 
umbrellaed under the craft of jewelry. Um, there's just, I don't think we'll, we'll learn it in a lifetime. You know, no. even, even starting very, very young, I don't think you could learn oh. or master all of it. No, Tim and I tell people, we, the thing, for me, the deadliest, my deadliest enemy is boredom. <laughs> and I learned something new after 50 years. Tim and I talk about, we learn something new every damn day. Um, I've just recently had to cut back on my teaching duties at Multnomah Arts Center. And so I've decided at this late stage in the game, I'm going to go down the enameling rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Because after all these years of working in yellow metal and white metal and, you know, a little pink or a little green metal, I'm, to put it in a vulgar s s term, I'm horny for color. <laughs> and, and so um, I, I have a, 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 one of my students who's, who's even more obsessive compulsive than I am came over and we went through, I had inherited this entire collection of enamels, an entire enameling studio from a German woman who was an enamelist in the 1960s. And there were probably a hundred jars of beautiful old leaded enamels and, and true ruby reds and everything you needed. And she and I spent two weeks going through every jar and making a whole sample mm. plate of everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's so gratifying to work yeah. with color again. And to see, especially when, with enamel, to see that process oh, yeah. happen and the colors shift as they cool. And Oh, yeah. Um, we and just had fire Ricky. And, yeah, and again, Oof. the heat. Um, it is. It's a very sexy process. Well, you've worked in glass, and I, I did. Yeah. I actually put myself through the uh, 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 U of O for a couple of years, making doing stained glass work. Nice. And there's something about the color of glass or vitreous enamel, which is basically glass. There's mm -hmm. something about the colors of glass that go straight through your eyeballs and retinas yeah. and right into the pleasure center of your brain and yeah. just lights up all that. Uh huh. Oxytocin, and <laughs> um, you know, I could just sit and stare at colors all day. Yeah, yeah. I love and it. Then, and and so, and I am so in awe of all of the amazing enamelists out there. And I and I'm too old, really, to master it. Quite frankly, you I really keep, don't have enough you time. You keep saying oh, you're running out of time. This is a common maybe. It's well, um, running out of time, but you're. you're well, I'm not even 70 yet, girl. You yeah, well, you know, my eyesight's going, my yeah. hands are going. We do start to feel different. And well, um, my arthritis has gotten pretty bad. That's and gonna be frustrating. My, I've had neck surgery, I've had hand surgeries, I'm supposed to have another neck surgery. Mm. And at this point, I can't find my own ass with both hands unless I have a five or ten power off device are on. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> you know, my back's killing me, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, I'll keep doing it until I can't anymore, yeah. quite frankly. And yeah. um, and I just have to find, you know, young minions who are willing to come in and, and forge and Calling all young minions. Yeah, young calling minions. all the young minions yeah. to come in and, you know, forge things out for me and draw wire. Totally. You know, because my shoulder keeps flopping out of its Maybe socket. this is part of bringing young people into the craft that we need to, Absolutely. you know, we all need to start thinking about. You guys are saying five to one a year. There's five jewelers aging out, whereas one is coming in. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a dying craft. You know, you hear all this dramatic stuff and it's like, I really don't see it. This is a timeless craft in my eyes. It's not... 
it's not going to disappear, but it, things definitely are changing with technology and you know well, all of that. But yeah, and these I, hand skills. I actually love CAD, and if I had a linear enough brain to master CAD, I would do that now. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Uh, if I were a young person learning the trade, I would first learn the actual manual skill set and then learn CAD bec- or learn them simultaneously. Because uh, and and for the last 20 years, with the onslaught of CAD and 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 all that, uh, people told Tim and I, "Well, you guys are dinosaurs. You know, your day is over. You got to learn this. You're dinosaurs. You're dinosaurs." Well, now. We've turned into, we've gone from being dinosaurs to this point, we're an endangered species. Hmm. And suddenly people are asking us again, well, so wait a minute, Hmm. how do you, you know, do this stuff? And uh, so, you know, it's just like my clothes from the 60s and 70s. They've come back into style again. (laughs) Just wait, just wait a minute. Yeah. (laughs) Give it 10 minutes. It'll be back. Yeah, it'll be back around. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, everything kind of goes in a cycle like that, I think. It does. It does. And remember, you know, Art Nouveau and the arts and crafts movement were um, uh, a reaction to the industrial age. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I also musically, uh, all the big hair bands and production bands of the uh, 80, you know the 80s uh, turned into punk and old timey in the 90s. Right. You know, it's like, oh no, you don't need to have you know a, a drum kit the size of a SUV. You just here's a chord, here's another chord. All right, let's write a song. Right. Uh, and and so I think we, we bounce back and forth. I think it's cyclical. You're right. We do. We do. It does change. We were talking. We just took a little break, Joe and I did, and we were talking about pieces that we we want to make that we have never haven't had a chance to make yet. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit with everybody? I think... Well, we- sure. Um, well, I have been making glasses for the last few years, and I love the engineering challenge, and I love mm-hmm. working with people's faces. And I've got a... Um, I really want to make a pair of men's glasses um, um, uh, with uh, Mokamegani, coal-connected Mokamegani, almost with a steampunk. Oh, cool! Because with with Mokamegani, you got to, you know, uh, it's going to be too soft by itself Mm -hmm. uh, to hold up for a pair of glasses. So I'll need to cold connect it on top of uh, 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 continuum silver. I. for years, I wanted to make glasses, but I, I had trouble trying to figure out what metal to use. Mm-hmm. And and of course, the ultimate thing would be well, eight, you know, fourteen or eighteen karat white gold, because it has to be sturdy and and springy and hard. And but you know, it's expensive, and I hate white gold. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And um, the nickel content. And platinum. And, yeah. Platinum would be really heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Really heavy and. And as would be gold, and silver is too soft. And then a few years back at the Portland Jeweler Symposium, the guys from Stoller showed up with continuum silver. And when I saw how it worked and what you could do with it, I mm-hmm. went, oh, "Now I can make glasses." Nice. And the stuff is incredible. I, I, I mean, so many people love argentium and. But um, I'm 
I'm a huge, huge, huge Continuum fan. I, mm -hmm. I sometimes feel a little bit like an asshole evangelical person you know, out there going, Continuum, no, it's the stuff, you know. <laughs> this is the yeah. way. Yeah, this is the way. <laughs> this is the one and only way. This is the best silver alloy in the world. Really? It really is. It's silver and palladium. Mm -hmm. It's expensive now because palladium has skyrocketed. It's about 80 bucks an ounce. Mm -hmm. But it's a hell of a lot cheaper than 14 karat white gold. And it is as hard and as springy as white gold. Mm -hmm. uh, you, when you cast it, um, I think it comes out at like 150 vickers as cast. And uh, if you uh, work hard on it, it it gets super hard and if you solder on it or anneal it it gets just as soft as silver and so like when I make a pair of glasses I'll make all the components and I'll do all my soldering and then when it's all said and done you put it in a kiln at 800 Fahrenheit for 40 minutes and you quench it mm -hmm. and boom it's as hard as a rock and it holds its shape you can see how thin this little area is in here in the middle of my glasses I've been wearing these for three years now nice and a, a lot yeah and they're still holding their shape and it doesn't fire scale and it's unlike argentium it's quite stable at high temperatures and it galls like platinum mm -hmm. so if you set a stone in continuum um the stone will get like with a if setting a stone in platinum prongs it will get tighter as you wear it Cool. It really holds up well. Uh, uh, when uh, Back during the recession when gold got super expensive, uh, people were asking for silver rings. And I said, well, I'll make your ring out of sterling silver. But I said, if there are going to be any stones set in it, I'm going to have to use continuum. Hmm. Okay. It's it's the bomb. That and is so, so interesting. I really want to make a pair of glasses with uh, Mocha Megani uh, um, cold connected to blackened continuum. Mm. Uh, and... and and if you're going to cold connect, you might as well make it part of the design element. You know, I'll, I, you know, I'll probably have to, like when I make glasses, I hand tap and dye all my little screws and nuts and stuff like that. Uh, but if I'm going to be working with Mokame, I, I think if, if I'm going to be using like a copper and a, a bronze alloy, I'll just go to um, uh, reactive metals yeah. and get those wonderful tiny little screws that they have that are already made just because mm -hmm. I'm lazy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> now, there's some things it's okay yeah. to, to outsource. Uh, so, yeah, there are a few more pairs of glasses I would really like to make. Mm -hmm. And I would also, I've, I've come cl this close twice in my career to making a tiara. Hmm. Uh, and both times the commission fell through. Uh -huh. And I've never, you know, and as a jeweler, after this many years in the trade, I've made, okay, yeah, I made rings. Yeah, I made necklaces. Yeah, I made earrings. And, well, now I'm making glasses because that's a new challenge. And uh, I really just want to have the challenge of making a tiara. I would think um, that would be a pretty good challenge, Joe. I think it would be a blast. Oh, I'd, really I'd love to like see to what you come it. up with. Um, I'm utterly fascinated by tiaras that that uh, are multi-use, you know, where you take them, like the famous fringe tiara that you see the royal family wear, that makes into a necklace. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, a bunch of the tiaras out there, they, they they're convertible know, the royal like that? jewels will do that. Ooh, and, I didn't know that. And with continuum silver... I can get 
it's like working with platinum. You can get things so much thinner and so much lighter mm -hmm. than you can with gold or any other metals. Yeah. Um, it, that it, you can really get delicate things that are sturdy and will hold mm. and hold their shape uh, and have spring to it. Yeah. So and I, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's going to probably take me a good year yeah, probably to pull that one off. Oh, send and me pictures, please. It takes me about a month to make a pair of glasses from concept to completion to, to completion how do you do the uh the lens portion you have those made and then well um i actually um you know most eyeglasses are made and then the lens are cut to fit the eyeglasses hmm. um but i still work like a jeweler and when i design a pair of glasses uh or draw them out the first thing i do is i i cut um a template for the lens out of some copper. I'll take a piece of copper and dome it like a lens. And I buy these things called Plano lenses. They're big, they're round circles about mm, three inches in diameter. Okay. Um, and I cover those with blue tape. And, and again, Deb Stoner showed me how I, I'll lay my template out on that and I just cut it with a jeweler's saw mm -hmm. and file it with a file and uh, smooth it and sand it and then uh, polish the edges with a little crystal polish. And sometimes the, the lens is notched like this is. So this, um, uh, these are notched all the way around. And so inside the eye wire up here is a little bit of uh, pure silver wire that goes into a notch, uh, uh, you know, super fine pure silver. It's nice and soft. And then the bottom here that is empty, like yours, right. is um, uh, basically fishing line. Wow. holding it in place. Um, if I have to make prescription lenses, then I I have a, an account, a wholesale account with a lens grinding company with Essilor, and I just give them, give them the template of the lenses that I need right. uh, along with the prescription, and then they cut them for me. Well, I have to ask what you charge for a pair. Now I'm sitting here, and I, I must uh, have a pair of glasses. My minimum wholesale fee is $3,000 for, for labor only. Because uh -huh. it takes me a month. You well, know? yeah, that's actually quite reasonable. That is quite reasonable. Yeah. Quite frankly, that's the family and friends. That's wholesale. Oh, I love that's it. Retail, I just got yeah. I just got the hook up um, with Joe. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and a lot of my clients all yeah. are aging out, and they've got all the rings and earrings and stuff they want, and um, and so why not mm. make eyeglasses? I love it. Yeah. Like you said, it's face jewelry. It is. It's, it's something you jewelry. wear every day. And I've gotten, I just hit 40. I can't see without them. Oh, no. Yeah, it stinks. Yeah. I, I hate it. I can still see close, but man, I can't, far read, away. Yeah. can't read that sign over there and no, can't see the leaves yeah. on the trees. <laughs> and those are important <laughs> leaves to see. So yes, I've is. just embraced that I'm going to be wearing them. And lace, it kind of freaks me out. It's like, you, you know, know, I've. I, I have know. a friend who's a jeweler who just had LASIK. Yeah. And she found out it really messed up her close up. I, I heard the same thing. Yep. Kristen. Uh, Kristen Shiga. Yep. yep. She just posted, I saw that. And yeah. she's not the first jeweler I've heard that from. She too. said four or five different optivizers now. To, yep. That's and an important thing, you guys. We should probably research before we you let know, you really laser should. beams touch uh, our eyes. And she's not the only jeweler I've heard that from. Yeah. And also, um, you know, because we make our livings with our eyes, the idea of somebody cutting up my retina just terrifies me. Yeah, me it's too. Just the, our it's eyes the and our hands. Yuck. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm not going to risk that yeah. when I could just wear some face no, jewelry. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. I love it. What is, can I ask, just to uh, have a comparison, what's the most expensive piece that you and Tim have ever made? Highest end. 
Um, well, all I ever did on it was polish. <laughs> Tim did most of the work. Um, it was a, a 17.24 carat emerald cut, internally flawless, colorless diamond. The stone alone was $3 million. Oh, my goodness. And the diamond broker in New York City uh, commissioned us. He sent, um, he had a mold made of the diamond. Mm. And out of plastic, and it was exactly right on. Mm -hmm. And Tim built this hand fabricate, this beautiful mounting. And because the stone was so big, it was so top heavy, he had to put a, a sure fit shank on it. Mm -hmm. And he built the mounting, and then he shipped it back to New York, uh, along with a little chiclet. It looked like a chiclet, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, piece of chewing gum, only big. And the guy decided that th that would be fine. And he had the mounting and the stones sent out from the East Coast via Brinks. And it was delivered to a bank. And, you, as, you know, there is no such thing as breakage insurance in the jewelry industry. If you chip a $3 million stone, well, you bought that $3 million stone. Mm -hmm. And you have to turn around and replace it with another $3 million stone. Right. And Tim and I are accustomed to risky business, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. And I just put my foot down and I said, no, mm -hmm. we cannot be responsible for this. We can't. I, I said, I don't want to have to work for free for the rest of my life. And so he called the diamond broker in New York um, and said, you know, my wife put her foot down. <laughs> And so he arranged through Lloyd's of London to insure us for one day. It cost, I don't know, ten or $20,000 just for one day's insurance. And My it was shipped out via Brinks, to a, delivered to a bank, two off-duty, plainclothes, heavily armed police officers came to our house, picked him up in an SUV, took him down to the bank, got the stone out of the vault, brought him back to our funky little basement studio and sat there with their hands on their guns while he set the stone. Wow. No pressure. Right. Oh my and goodness. Tim got it in there. And of course, I get to be Cinderella for minutes at a time. And I put that thing on and oh my Lord have mercy. Wow. You know, when you put on and this was just, the three million was just for the stone. That doesn't include the mounting and all the security and the insurance and everything. I have no idea what the final thing was. Right. But I t and it was, and I'll tell you, I've, I've seen, Tim and I both have seen and worked on bigger diamonds than mm -hmm. that, but never colorless mm -hmm. and flawless. It was GIA certed. It was, yeah, up, you know, wow. over the moon. And I put that thing on my hand, and I'll tell you what, my posture got a little better. I sat up a little straighter. My face just sort of lifted up. Mm -hmm. And every single liver spot on the back of my hand disappeared. <laughs> I put that stone and the cops and the cops were, of course, beside themselves. They're going, whoa, you know, because right. they'd never been around anything like that. And they're taking pictures with their iPhones and stuff. So I got to be Cinderella for a few minutes at a time. Yeah. But, you know, the downside is that when you work on something that on that big and that important a stone, mm -hmm. um, 
And I told Tim, I said, look, honey, don't get too wound up about this because, you know, in about five years, they're going to take that stone out of the mounting and they're going to melt the mounting down and put it in something else. Mm -hmm. And we found out about five years later that, in fact, the person had taken the stone out of the mounting because it's ridiculous to wear that mm -hmm. biggest 17 some odd carat thing on your finger. Mm -hmm. And but the and she had it mounted in something else. But the good news is she loved the mounting so much that she had uh, another stone mounted into the she kept the mounting and had something else put in there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Wow, so, that's special. Oh yeah, my goodness. Yeah, that really is special. Wow. Ooh, yeah, no pressure. But, yeah, no pressure. One I, of those no pressure situations. I had to I had to go outside and work in the yard. <laughs> I couldn't stand there and watch him do that. Right. I had to leave yeah. the room. Oh, breathe, just breathe. Breathe, breathe. Yeah. And when the when it was all said and done, by the time he was done with it, cuz you know, we do our most important and delicate work first thing in the morning when you're still fresh, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so by the time Tim was done and they the cops had driven him back to the bank and he delivered this mounting it was like 10 30 a.m and the cop said well you got us in the car for the rest of the day you want to you want to like like i don't know drive to the beach or something you know and awesome. where do you want to go and tim said and we live about three miles from downtown portland and tim said you know i think i need to walk home i need a nice long walk and yeah and he said this and he refers to setting jobs, you know, as one and two diaper setting jobs. He said this was a two diaper setting job, <laughs> even though he knew he was covered for it. But still, oh, you that's know, so he had, he had a nice long walk home. Uh -huh. And um, I think he cracked open his first beer by, you know, one in the afternoon. Of course. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Time to just. OK, we got through that one. But yes, we've worked. Yeah. We've worked on some. Uh, I've got to work on some of the most amazing and beautiful mm. things ever. How fortunate. Working for the uber wealthy. And, yeah. And um, I'm the luckiest girl in the world, really mm. and truly. That's so amazing. I really am. The world doesn't owe me a damn thing. Love that. What's the most uh, valuable lesson you've learned in, in this life of yours? In Besides uh, learning how to say no. How to, how to what? Well, learning how to say no. You mentioned oh, how to say you would tell yourself. What's the most important lesson I've learned? It's kind of a big question. Oh, it is a big question. Um, wow. Mm, take your time. Um, failure is a good thing. I love that. You know, my mother was a scientist, and she said, experiments are never a failure. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm just as happy to have an experiment fail as I am to have it succeed because then I know where to go from there. Right. And I think that, yeah, it, failures are probably the most useful tool I have. And like I said, I what I fucked up everything there is to fuck up. <laughs> Who is I have, I have messed up. I have made some spectacular mistakes in my life, but I know how to, I'm what you call it, I know how to make it look like it never happened. Yeah. Or that it's an important part of the design. Yeah, intentional. Intentional. That's a yeah. big gift. Yeah, and and I think if I had any advice to give to a young jeweler today, besides learning when to say no, is um, learn how to draw. Learn how to draw quickly and well, because two weeks. If somebody comes to you for a custom job and it's two weeks before you can get that, or two days before you get that CAD design back. They've gone online and they found something else that they like too. 
Um, don't give them a chance to change, you know, get, nail them while you can. Learn how, A, mm -hmm. learn how to draw. B, if you really want to be a great artist or a great musician, you don't need to go to school for that so much. Because if it really matters to you to make great art and great music, you'll get good at it anyway. And I advise young people to go to a community college and take uh, courses in basic business and in marketing, social media, and promotion. Mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Graham. I love her work. Mm -hmm. And boy, nothing, nobody does black like Sarah. I gotta say, I love her work. And you know, she didn't study jewelry in college. She studied international business. And she never took a jewelry class. She went to work in a local trade shop, one that I served my apprenticeship in, and said, I wanna be a jeweler, I wanna be a design jeweler, and I wanna work here for a couple of years and learn everything I can about jewelry, but I'm going to here to tell you I'm going to move on from there. And my former boss, the late Kim Clementis, uh, late lamented, he was a lovely man, he said, absolutely. And when her year or so was up, he actually helped her get her business started and, and uh, showed her the ropes. And the jewelers I know who are the most financially successful are people who um, understand, or not only highly skilled, uh, like uh, Henry Dunay, he, he, he supported himself just being a, a contract diamond setter, mm. you know, um, uh, while he built his custom business. The people who are the best, who are the most well-known designers and custom jewelers are people who, who understand how to market themselves and how to manage and earn money and also how to ask for it. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the great gift my father gave me was, I'm an artist, I made this art, pay me. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's no sin in I love profit. That. Yeah. Well, the, it's like, when did that come to be, uh, even an idea or a thought? I think probably during the Romantic era, you yeah. know, it was people, like the starving, all the starving poets artists and, and the, the starving Garrett artists. And, um, you know, although I love Vincent van Gogh's art and Toulouse Latrex's art, um, they both kind of mess things up for the rest of us because now people think we have to be crazy alcoholics and drug addicts. Um, yeah. And quite frankly, um, I, being a, a, an artist has kept me from becoming a, a, a non-functional drug addict and hmm. alcoholic because I'm, I've been too busy making art. Right. And, you know, as you well know, if you're working in jewelry, you can't show up hungover or... Um, I can't, I, the fir first thing I learned working in the trades was, uh, in the first thing in the morning, you don't have a donut and a cup of coffee and then try to set a diamond. Right. Because you're just <laughs> going to twitch like a cold chihuahua. Yeah. You know, it, it, uh, and I, yeah, I tell people, you know, art saves lives. It, it kept me from, you know, I'm a functional drug addict alcoholic, you know, it kept me from that and vanity, you know, kept me from, um, because I'm just too busy making art. Making art. Well, Absolutely. it's super healing, you know. It's um, instead of, it's it's a great distraction from, you know, all oh. of the hardships and the other reasons that we might drink alcohol or you know, abuse oh. drugs. It's it's oh, if you can yeah. channel your into your creativity. It's uh, oh, and I've, I've much healthier. Oh, absolutely. It, it it's, um, Kurt Vonnegut. You know, 
has, there's a great quote by him. I wish I could pull it off the top of my head. And, and it's online somewhere about, yeah. you know, make art, make music, even if you do it badly. Right. Just do just it. Just do yeah. it. Sing. Just do, yes, do it. Exactly. Do it. Do it. And I, I love teaching beginning students because um, I, because they come up with the craziest crackpot ideas that mm. I would never in a million years would think would fly. And I go, well, yeah, let's just, yeah, just go for it. Yeah. I let's get it. busy. Uh-huh. So Deb doesn't, you just reminded me of some, Deb doesn't teach eyeglass making anymore. Deb Stoner doesn't make um, eyeglasses no, anymore. No, she's done with eyewear. And up. Do you, are she you te- is, actually, she is, um, oh my gosh. She's becoming the, a world-famous photographer. What? She, believe it or not, she took her first, I think, photography classes from my husband Tim's uh, late ex-wife, Sherry Heiser, who's what? a famous photographer in her own right. Deb took photography lessons from Sheree. And in the last few years, uh, she has been doing the most breathtaking uh, Photographs. It sounds boring, but it's not. If you just Google Deb Stoner photography, okay, it's if I wish I had a bigger house, I wish I had a lot of money, I would buy a piece of her. I would own everything. She just recently finished wrapping an entire museum gallery, the exterior of a museum gallery, in her photographs. And when I saw that online, I, I shared it on Facebook. And my mm-hmm. younger sister, who lives across the street from me, we both have older homes that need paint. Nan says, hey, let's just have Deb Stoner wrap our houses for oh, us. Oh, right. <laughs> but no, she's not making eyeglasses anymore. And, and, and I'm Talk sad about that she's not making eyeglasses anymore because she was so good at it. Mm-hmm. But she... Her photography work is just... <gasps> so she just, just completely turned and reinvented herself. Yes, she did. How awesome is that? I love yeah, that. I do, too. Yeah. And, you know, and she did it late in life. Yep. Uh, not as late in life as I am, but later in life than you are. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just like I reinvented myself as a jeweler when I, you know, got too stove up to do repetitive it's never manufacturing. I just said, well... Um, you know, I went to workman's, workman's Comp relieved me from working in a trade shop and doing mm-hmm. manufacturing. I said, you can't do this anymore. And I said, well, I don't know how to do anything else other than I know how to play the guitar and I know how to make jewelry. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we can retrain you. And my options, I think, were to be a manager at a McDonald's or, you know, learn computer technology, which is the worst thing in the world you can do, A, with arthritic hands and B, a dyslexic person. So... Um, I said, well, I'm going to keep making jewelry. I'm just going to make less of it and charge more. Yeah. And um, and I think that as it's important that as we age that we just, you know, stop trying to please so many people Mm. and just please a few. (laughs) And in the end, now I'm, you know, at the end of my career, so I'm mostly just pleasing myself. Good for you. If somebody wants me to make something, I don't want to make it. I go, "Eh." It's really what it comes down to anyway, is if you're not pleased, then it's like the whole world isn't pleased. I mean, to me, that's perspective. It's like how we choose to look at life and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, one little change of mind can change your whole outlook and... Good, but, good on you. I'm, I'm thank you. learning although, a lot from you today. Thanks, Joe. Well, yeah, but don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not 100% pleased with everything I make. Because I, I don't know about you, but I'll make this spectacular piece of jewelry, and all I can see is that one little pit. 
Mm-hmm. Or that one little scratch. Don't right point it out to there. your customer. And my students, you know, when my students, beginning students say, oh, I made this, you know, at the end of the term, we get everything out and, and look at what they made. And I go, oh, yeah. I said, well, this is really cool. Oh, yeah, but I kind of messed this up over here. I go, la, 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 la. I said, no. I said, when you're selling your jewelry and, you know, I'm, well, I'm going to sell these earrings, but I'm going to give a discount because I'm not happy with that solder seam. I go, no, zip it. Mm -hmm. Zip it. Don't say a word. I said, I can't. And they said, well, you're everything you do is perfect. I go, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I can see every tiny little flaw. I've just learned how to keep my mouth shut. Yep. And because what we do is magic yeah. to the average layman. Absolutely. It's magic. And don't, don't just say, well, I'm new at this and I kind of suck and I'm not going to. No, zip it. Just say, somebody says, wow, that's really cool. Don't go, uh, mm -hmm. Just say, well, thank you. It worked really hard on this, and it took me a long time to learn how to do this. Yeah. And here's, and here's what it costs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, husband says, my husband's favorite uh, way to close a deal is just yeah. always, you know, we'll talk about everything, but, you know, whatever. And then he hands him the sketch, and they go, oh, my gosh, that's wonderful. Uh -huh. You know, and he goes, well, okay, will that be cash or credit exactly i love it joe yeah. we got to leave everybody on that note that's a beautiful message don't be afraid to charge for for your work you, you have to also consider guys you have put in years of education and time and blood sweat and tears you know to learn this craft don't don't just charge for your materials you know i think we're setting a standard here in the industry <sighs> that we can just break even and that's just not reality we no, have to no, make no. a living yeah, don't race to the bottom. Don't compete with China. Don't compete with India. Don't race to the bottom. And uh, uh, well just, uh, we always, our, our formula is we keystone the cost of our materials to the wholesale account and charge $100 an hour for our bench labor. Mm -hmm. And there is, and that's it. Yep. Boom. Uh, my father used to say when he was a painter, uh, uh, he had two prices. It was either $1,000 or it was free. Ha. And if he met you and thought you were fascinating, a young lady, mm -hmm. he'd probably just do your portrait and, and give it to you. Uh -huh. But if you were an industrialist, he would charge you $1,000. And this is $1,970. Mm -hmm. and, and I look at people and I go, and somebody says, oh, well, I got this earring back. It's kind of loose. And I go, oh, well, here, you know. I said, it's either... $100 or it's free. Mm. And because, and, and, and if somebody brings something to, if I have to turn my torch on, it's a hundred bucks and some, and I'll fix something and, and, and it'll take 10 minutes. I flip my torch on and that's a hundred bucks. I go, it only took you three minutes. And I go, yeah. And it took me how many years to learn how to do that? Right. Three minutes. Yeah. Right. It's the same with musicians. Yep. You know, you oh, got to charge for that be. rehearsal yeah. time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, all those endless hours woodshedding. Yeah. And all those years of drudgery, sanding and filing. Right. And doing it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Charge what Charge what you're worth. Don't point out the flaws. This yep. great advice. Yeah. Just smile and say thank you. Yes. And pay me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I can't tell you how excited I am to have this time with you today. And um, thank you for sharing so openly 
your journey with us. And um, I, there's so many ways to relate to what you're telling all of us, I think. And it's just been really a joy to get to know you. Another bottle of wine, like you said, we'll talk music because we're oh, both musicians. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's like, a, it's a whole other can of worms. You're, you know, we'll have to just. Absolutely. Well, I can't tell you it's uh, how much of a pleasure it's been to meet you in person. And it's been terrific. Uh, it's just like sitting around with a girlfriend on a rainy Oregon day, just Perfect. shooting the breeze. I know we got this nice little drizzle of rain here in Portland. Um, beautiful city here. Gosh, I love it. You it guys, lovely, check yeah. out the Portland Symposium. Check out the symposiums around the world and the country because this is your opportunity to get with your mentors, to get with people like Joe who have been in the industry, who have these hand skills and they're they're passing them down don't miss the opportunity especially our younger generation we're finding it's so important that you guys you know not only learning the new digital and what's out there but we, we need to keep these hand skills alive it is absolutely imperative i i i i don't I think I don't I think I've maybe missed one Portland Jewelers Symposium in all really? these years. I've been to Santa Fe twice. I would go more often if I could afford it. And uh, the thing I learned an important lesson at Santa Fe uh, Symposium from Eddie Bell, which is the definition. I think it's the Greek origin of the word symposium is drinking with discussion. Yes, <laughs> I just learned this last year. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. an actual literal meaning that is yeah. like. Drinking they, and learn, you know, drink and learn. <laughs> <laughs> My first year at the symposium, they said, so uh, what, what did you learn your first year at the symposium? I said, well, what, what advice do you have to somebody going to the symposium for the first time? I said, well, mm -hmm. lose five pounds first. Right. And plan on going through uh, rehab when you get home. Oh, my gosh. Or, You're or going cleanse, to eat. Yeah. You're going to drink. Your brain will be full of inf new oh, information. Oh, my gosh. You, you it's know. the after hour. It's all the after hour. It, I mean, the lectures are fascinating yeah. because, again, I get my art geek on and my science geek on. But it's just hanging out with these world-class yeah. artisans and scientists and and just regular folks. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, well, and I love that because it is you're you're right there with you know with these masters, and then you've got beginners, and you've got all these different generations together as well. Um, everybody's so down to earth, so friendly in this craft. I have not crossed paths with many. I will say, you know, there's always couple people out there but but most it just seems like such a loving open craft at this stage it, um, it is at this stage when mm -hmm. i started off in the trade though people held their secrets close yeah and that's and changed. wouldn't share and for oh no i'm not going to tell you and that's why eddie bell started the santa fe symposium he and some guys got together and started drinking and saying well none of these old farts are telling us how to do this stuff and we got to figure out how to and that's yeah. what gave birth to that. And I love I, that. I love that, yeah. too. It's so important. The symposium papers, too, those will forever be available. Oh, online. Yeah. They're, uh, they're free. Yeah. This is Open source free information. Massive amounts of technical oh. and you know tips and all of these just different masters who have taken a lot of time to write. Did you ever present? You haven't presented... You, you never presented at the Santa Fe Symposium? Uh, no, I can yeah. remember. I didn't pay attention in school, so writing is kind of... <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> you, learned, you you did well, Joe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I might have to do a uh, presentation one of these days. Yeah. You should definitely. Uh, do a paper. I'd like to do a paper on continuum. Mm. Oh, or mean, eyewear, one of the two, oh, or both absolutely. at the same time. You should absolutely but do I gotta, that. But i got to tie my science hat on. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'd be great at that. Joe, where do we find your work and Timothy's work? 
Um, well, uh, gosh, uh, I have a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a personal Facebook page where you can look at all my cute kitten videos. And then I have uh, Joe Hamer Gold and Platinum Smith on Facebook. Um, and also my husband and I have a website, uh, www.timothywgreen.com. Mm -hmm. Neither one of those pages is particularly up to date, but, but there's some pretty good eye candy there. Nice. Oh, yeah. Go check out Joe's work. And um, she's one of the best of the best. I'm not going to call you a dinosaur because you keep saying dinosaur. No, I'm an endangered species. <laughs> You're too species. vigorous. Yeah. And yeah, to, to even relate you to that. But yeah. Joe, thank you again. What a pleasure. Oh, and thank you so much, Courtney. Yeah. It's been, it really was my pleasure. Yay. Awesome. All right. Now let's so go we, drink. Let's Bye. go have a glass yeah. of wine. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Onward and upward. Thank you all for joining me for this episode of For the Love of Jewelers, brought to you by Rio Grande Jewelry Supply, honored to serve our vibrant industry since 1944. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did, you can find a digital download by visiting riograndecom keyword podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share this with fellow movers and shakers, and please feel free to add any comments or questions below. I'm Courtney Gray, and until next time, onward and upward.